Nashville is a community in mourning. As you leave the city and drive into its southern suburbs, you can't miss the unending rows of red and black ribbons tied to mailboxes and the yard signs that read, I Stand with Covenant and Covenant Strong. On March 27, 2023, Evelyn Dickhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinney, all nine years old, and Catherine Kuntz, Mike Hill, and Cynthia Peake, dedicated educators and employees in their 60s, were murdered. And yet another place of play and learning was turned into the scene of an unspeakable crime and forever scarred by the events that took place within its halls. The New York Times claims there is no consensus on what differentiates a shooting from a mass shooting. Some groups define it depending on the number of victims, those killed or wounded, and whether or not the shooting occurs in public. The Violence Project, a nonprofit research center with the mission of reducing societal violence, defines a mass shooting as killing four or more people. In 2022, a nonprofit research group that tracks gun violence, called the Gun Violence Archive, reported 647 mass shootings in the United States, with 21 of them resulting in the deaths of five or more people. As of late May 2023, the Gun Violence Archive has counted more than 260 mass shootings in the U.S. this year. But part of me feels like I shouldn't even bother saying this, because there will always be more, and these numbers will continue to fall onto the deaf ears of those with the power to change our very dark reality. Some sources say the lack of action on gun control legislation in Congress is a result of low-population states with a significant amount of power voting pro-gun and anti-restriction. Other sources say it's the result of politicians who don't want to lose voter support in their home states. Others claim politicians are financially backed by the National Rifle Association, known otherwise as the NRA. Whatever it is, being an American in general right now feels helpless. Everywhere you go, people are on edge. Loud sounds make people in grocery stores, at concerts, on the street, tense up and look to the source of noise, ready either to run or hit the ground. America is a traumatized society, and the politicization of gun violence, something that's really more of a public health and humanitarian issue, only serves to deepen the divide and alienate Americans from each other. On March 27th, I was sitting on the couch in my flat in St. Andrews when I got a text from my mom that there was an active shooter in a school in my neighborhood. The next text was that children were dead. In the past, it's never been easy to hear that another shooting has happened. I often feel the same drop in my stomach as a wave of sadness and despair wash over me, as I'm sure many of you do too. But this time, and for me personally, having a shooting happen in a school across the street from where I went to school when I was the exact age of the children who died hit closer to home than ever. Nashville, although it's a quickly growing city, still feels very small in many regards. Neighborhoods of people who have lived here for generations are close-knit, and returning home just two months after that day awoke in me that sense of community and opened my eyes to the very tangible grief that lingers between us. Shortly following the shooting at Covenant, I was checking Instagram when I saw my former high school English teacher posted a story where she asked her students their thoughts on how the gun violence issue in the U.S. could be solved. Seeing an educator speak out about the issue made me wonder what it's like, emotionally, mentally, communally, to be a teacher right now on the so-called front lines of the American mass shooting epidemic. Much of the conversation surrounding mass shootings focuses on guns versus victims, but I was curious to learn more about the people who are caught in the midst of it all. Teachers have become involuntary pawns in a game of political warfare, 
as debates over arming educators transform their places of work into an increasingly militarized space. This is part one of a two-part series where I interview first a private school teacher with a public school background, and then an educator in the public school system on what it's like to be a teacher in the United States in 2023. I hope you take something from this honest and uninhibited conversation. Hi, how are you, Ward? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm so excited to see you and talk to you. This is so awesome. Same. It's been far too long. Okay, so usually to get us started, I like to ask my guests some questions. So will you tell us um, where you're from, what you do, and then I have like a fun question for the end. I'm originally from Ohio in the Midwest of the United States uh, from a very small town between Cleveland and Akron. Um, But now I live in Alexandria, Virginia, about five miles from the Washington, D.C. border. Um, I work at a boarding school called Episcopal High School, your alma mater. And um, I teach high school English. I teach 10th, 11th, and 12th graders. And then I also am the director of the writing center here, a varsity volleyball coach. And then I also work on a girls' dorm and advise upperclassmen. So lots of different hats that I wear here. Okay, and then my fun question is very on brand for Episcopal. So I remember um, Rev C used to ask... um, are you a lake person or a mountain person? <laughs> I'm more of a, or a beach. beach or, no, not yeah, a lake. beach or the mountain. Beach, sorry. Beach, beach or mountains. mountains. Yes, I am definitely a beach person. I love the water. And even if I'm not in the water, I just like the sound of it. And I like, if it's not moving, I like the stillness of it and sort of the, the glassy look that I can provide. And maybe the mountains in the background, but I do love the beach. I love to be on a beach. I love reading on a beach and relaxing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's your favorite beach? Ooh, that's a hard one. Um, my family, when I was little, used to vacation. This is actually really sad, but we used to vacation on Sanibel Island um, in southwest Florida. And unfortunately, they had so much damage from Hurricane Ian that, you know, they're coming back now at this point, but um, certainly not the same. But that was definitely my favorite beach. Lots of seashells. It's like the seashell capital of the world. And um, mm-hmm. just a lot of good memories there. So I think that's why it's my favorite. Wow. Yeah, that's nice. I think, like, if I were to answer that question personally, I think a while ago, pre-St. Andrews, I would have said a mountain person, but now I love the beach here so much that that, it's, like, where I go to, like, clear my head. So I'd say definitely a beach person as well. I just, I love being under an open sky. Yeah, oh, I agree with that. I actually spent um, a few days up in sky uh, some years ago. I guess it was twenty. 18, summer 2018 maybe just a friend and I took a little mm-hmm. a long weekend trip up there and our um, bed and breakfast was the Hebridean Inn and it was right on the beach and like the tide coming mm-hmm. in and out and it was just awesome it was so beautiful Aww. that's awesome I really I need to go to the Isle of Skye I'm waiting like maybe next August or something when it's not gross and sad and Scottish winter <laughs> yeah and not nearly yeah not nearly as touristy either so yeah definitely so to get into today's episode theme um I reached out to you because you put something up on your story following the shooting in Nashville at um the elementary school that was also part of a church um 
and I was just kind of like inspired by your willingness to speak out about it and something I've always been curious about is what is it like to be a teacher in America today so that's like the theme of today's episode very heavy but um I guess to get us started will you tell us how did you decide to become a teacher how did you decide to like go into that field yeah absolutely so I was recruited to be an athlete in college and ended up choosing to go to the University of Virginia because of the education program. And part of that whole process is if you couldn't do the athletics that you've been recruited to do, you know, where are you going to get the best education? And UVA has a great five-year master's program, five-year bachelor master's program. And so I went to UVA, spent my time there on the track team and loved my time there and thought actually throughout most of middle school and high school and then half of college, I thought, well, I'm definitely going to be a, an elementary school teacher. Like I love little kids. I think they're great. And I really want to teach them. And then in the ed school, I spent probably a week over the summer with like 43rd graders. And I was like, absolutely not. I cannot handle this energy (laughs) and like the insanity of young, like of little littles. And, um, Mm So I started to, I changed my focus in ed school to be higher ed. Um, For us, that meant like six through 12. And so you earn your certification and you do all that um, and kind of do your your practicum teaching experience in like small chunks as you build up to your grad year. And then the fall semester of your, your fifth year there, you do a full student teacher load. And I did that at a local high school at Monticello High School in Charlottesville, Virginia, um, where... um, I taught, gosh, 11th grade AP English and then a 12th grade kind of remedial English. And so it was really fun and I loved the personalities. I'm actually still in contact with um, two or three of the kids that I taught and one kid who was a former student of the teacher I was working with and we're all just still still friends, which is really cool. Um, Mm -hmm. And so then after I graduated, I got into public school for two years and then went to Mercersburg Academy for two years and then ended up here at Episcopal where I've been for, if you can believe it, I'm finishing up my ninth year here, so it's pretty wow. pretty crazy. But um, yeah, that's kind of my education journey, and I love working with high schoolers. I've worked with six through twelve throughout my career, and have really my public school um, work was with middle school, and I have really loved my work with high schoolers. I think ninth graders can be tough. I've taught them I taught them for two years at Mercersburg, but I think my strengths lie with older students, so I've really enjoyed that. I agree. I think your strengths lie with older students. <laughs> As a former student, I think you would agree with that. <laughs> um, yeah. So what are like the main differences you notice between teaching public school and teaching private school, but then also teaching like public and private versus boarding school? Yeah, sure. So with public school, it was a big emphasis on the state standards. So in Virginia, they're called the SOLs, Standards of Learning. And they had to be sort of prominently displayed, and a lot of my personality was really stifled in that. Um, And that can be really tough for public school educators. A lot of my friends are still in public school education. Um, And so there is this huge emphasis on making sure that kids are passing tests. And um, for me, I care so much more about, like, the identity of a kid and understanding who they are and starting to shape their worldviews. And if you can't tell the difference between a simile and a metaphor, that's not the end of the world to me. I don't necessarily believe that... You're not going to be a successful adult if you aren't, um, you know, fully, fully successful in all subjects in, in high school. 
Um, and so, yeah, the difference between public and private is the ability to really get to know kids um, more so than just in the content area. I'm not working through a workbook or a textbook. Um, I'm really getting to, to curate what my students read um, and speak to them about important topics like my, my Instagram story that asked kids to come up with a solution to school shootings in America. And I don't teach only American students, and especially in that class. I have several international students, and that actually provided some really interesting clarity on the differences between international and American schools. Um, and so, yeah, between boarding and, pu- and boarding in public or boarding in just like day school? Boarding and day school in general. Yeah, boarding and day school is interesting. Mercersburg is about... 80 to 85 percent boarding on any given year and about 15 to 20 percent um day students and the day student population is is interesting because it's hard for them to sort of integrate into the the community life after hours um you know as a, as a boarding school student yourself that so much happens on the dorm especially after 10 p.m there's so much bonding and there are these emotionally wonderful moments and emotionally crushing moments and it's all sort of part of the experience and so our day students were really removed from that. Now, they obviously had the freedom to pursue other things that they wanted, like, um, you know, jobs and things like that. It's really hard to have a job at Episcopal High School. Um, we've had it happen in the past, but it's certainly not really something that our kids do. But, you know, driver's licenses, jobs, and, um, and just a bit more freedom, really. Um, we don't really afford that opportunity as well as a day school does. But I think that we afford something completely different and unique. Mm-hmm. Totally. I completely agree. When you're in your day-to-day life as a teacher, Episcopal is obviously very safe. Like there's a security team, there's cameras on like every fence, there's fences around the whole campus. Um, what are like some of the the concerns, I guess, that you think about on a day-to-day basis, be it with surrounding like a potential shooter situation or otherwise? Yeah, so it's interesting. My kids, during that conversation a couple weeks ago when I had posed that question to them, one of my students said, do you feel safe here? And I kind of turned it back on them, like, do you feel safe here? Like, am I making you feel physically safe? And they said yes, which I think is great. And again, as you mentioned, the the security here is strong. Um, But, you know, in reading statistics and obviously reading tons and tons of news articles in the wake of every single school shooting that happens in this country, Um, over 90% of them are planned. And so whether it's someone who has a connection to the school or someone who knows the the campus of the school well, if somebody wants to do bad things, they're going to do their best to try to get those bad things done. Um, And all the security in the world sometimes can't stop them, Um, which is horribly disheartening to say and to think and to feel. um, But it's sort of the reality of of what's going on here. Um, And so, yes, I feel incredibly safe here. Um, I'm up on... The third floor of a building and yes we have a ton of staircases and things like that but I never actually feel unsafe where I teach um, but the measures that I put in place on a daily basis which sort of have become part of my daily routine is constantly having my keys in the middle of my desk so that if I had to grab them to lock my door I know exactly where they are um, and then I actually sit facing the door um, so that I can see the door at all times, that if there were some kind of emergency passing by the door, regardless of whether it was an active threat or not, um, I would be able to see it before before anything, before the kids at least. And um, I don't mm-hmm. like to have my back to the door, which is kind of 
in the past few years I've recognized is, is a result of being a teacher in America. And not that I don't feel safe here, but I think it's just the weight of what happens. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, so where, at what point in your teaching career do you think that the threat of school shootings became like as paramount as it is today? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, mostly because my, my senior students who are, you know, 17, 18 years old, have been saying they've been doing active intruder drills since they were in kindergarten. So that's giving, you know, like 13 years. And that's pretty much the beginning of my teaching career, about their, thereabouts. Um, mm-hmm. And I would say my first two years in public school, we never practiced those kinds of drills. So that was back in um, 2010, 11, 12-ish. Um, and so, you know, within the past... 15 years, we didn't do that. And it certainly wasn't a topic of conversation when I was in college. Like we never talked about what do you do to protect your students from a physical threat of a shooter. Um, But I'd say probably in my time at Mercersburg, it became a bigger topic of conversation. And then certainly it's been a part of my life here. We've had several different types of training here. Um, and now we're in this sort of run, fight, hide, which is the simplified version version of ALICE training, which is an acronym for something I can't remember at this point. Um, but that was sort of pre-COVID, and then we've, we've transitioned into this, um, considering how we can bunker down in here if we have to, like what furniture has to move, um, mm-hmm. all that, all of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember, I think kind of to to your point on how long your students have been doing shooter drills. So I live in Nashville now, um, but I grew up in Sewanee, which is an hour and a half south of Nashville in Tennessee. And um, I remember my first active shooter drill was in fifth grade after the Newtown shooting. And I remember, okay, this was a point that I was debating with my mom, was that um, someone asked so my teacher was like, okay, like we're going to do like a drill in case she never actually said like in case like a shooter comes, but she was like, in case something were to happen. Cause we were in fifth grade. Like I get it. You don't want to freak us out. But someone asked, they were like, oh, why are we having to do this? And I was like, well, I guess your parents didn't tell you what happened. Um, but my teacher, she answered like, oh, just some things that are happening in other schools or just some things that have happened in other schools. So like, what do you think, I know you don't teach little kids, but what do you think is the appropriate response for like talking about this kind of, this issue with different age groups of of kids and how does it change based on if you're talking with like little children versus 18 year olds who are about to go to college? Right. I mean, some of our kids are, have voted in you know, recent elections, you know, we had the midterm elections and things like that in the fall of 2022. So we had some kids who were voting in that. And then thinking about how you speak to little kids about this, a lot of my friends are parents, I'm not personally a parent. And so I haven't had this experience in talking to kids about violence in schools. Um, I think obviously the most important thing to do is to keep them kind of mentally and emotionally safe because you don't want them to be afraid to go to school. Um, But it's the idea that if a bad person wants to do bad things or wants to harm people, that's why we're doing those things and running those drills um, and explaining that in some parts of our country specifically, not especially, but specifically, that there are times when people will, will try to harm other human beings and um, that we have to be prepared in the event that someone would try to um, enter our school and harm 
and harm any of us. Um, and so it's the concept of utilizing different phrases and words that aren't invoking the violence that that comes with school shootings. Um, so being particular about word choice and then making sure that you're taking care of their mental and emotional safety because, you know, kids are fragile and they remember very deeply when things are are scary to them. Um, and that can really create some deep-seated fears that, that will just last quite a long time. So, I mean, if you're remembering things from fifth yeah. grade in the wake of, you know, the killing of, of a lot of children, um, and I think, what was it, 17 kids and six adults or something along those lines, or 20 kids and six adults. I mean, it was a... a Newtown was mm-hmm. awful. Um, I mean, all of them are awful, to be completely honest. But um, it is. It's an incredibly difficult thing to talk about with kids, and especially kids who have experienced it. I mean, I, there are kids who were um, college students on various campus who had already lived through a school shooting at their own school, who then went to college and had the same thing going on of an active shooter. And so it's kind of crazy that this can be so mm-hmm. cyclical and nothing's done about it. Yeah. Yeah, so whenever, so, okay, so Episcopal is, as I said earlier, highly, a very secure, safe environment. Um, Is there ever a discussion among teachers of, of arming teachers? Um, I, that would be the day that I would quit teaching and anywhere in any capacity uh, is if they decided to say, we're going to give teachers guns in their classrooms. Um, I am I am vehemently anti-gun, uh, and I'm not afraid to talk about that with my students, to say that we don't have to share that opinion. And uh, I've had students who said, well, I was raised, and again, it's sort of a cultural thing in the South, to be raised with a house full of guns and to shoot guns and learn how to use them when you're really, really young. And I think that's a part of how people grew up, and I don't fault them for that at all. I think that's an important part to acknowledge about somebody, again, about their identity. I value every kid's identity. Um, but it is part of the conversation to understand that arming teachers is not the solution. It's absolutely not going to stop anything because if I'm sitting across my room um, away from my desk and that's where a firearm is and someone were to come in my door, I'm not stopping anybody by even having a weapon. Um, And so I think it's incredibly naive and stupid and it's always the um the lawmakers who have no idea what goes on in education who think that that's the solution most unfortunately um they kind of need to Mm -hmm. walk in teachers shoes a bit more before they can start making claims like we should give teachers firearms i mean that that puts everybody in more danger in fact yeah yeah and i think i mean in the u.s there's already kind of a, a teaching crisis of people not really there's a teacher shortage so how much do you think the threat of school shootings plays into that? I mean, it's certainly a, a terrible detriment to the mental and emotional health of our of our nation's teachers. I mean, constantly thinking about the ways that we have to be put in, in harm, that ways that we could be put in harm's way, I should say, uh, are really frightening. Um, I know that currently the threat of changes to the curriculum is probably a higher threat in this country than than actual violence against students and teachers um, just based off of friends who teach in Florida who aren't allowed to teach works like Hamlet um, and so I think that's a huge huge fear amongst teachers is that they will be policed by again people who have never set foot in a classroom and don't actually understand what goes on in those classrooms um, so 
I, I would say the shortage isn't necessarily because of um, because of school shootings. I'm sure that is a contributing factor. I'm sure teachers who work in districts where that happens probably reconsider their career choices. Um, I know people who reconsider their career choices just on a daily basis because of how tough it is to teach in America, especially in public schools. So, I mean, I think I have it mm -hmm. pretty great here. Um, I am, I do love my job, as tough as some days might be. <laughs> what are the conversations like among your fellow teachers at Episcopal after every school shooting? I mean, do you, how is it acknowledged? I mean, we definitely, I have several friends that I have a, a stronger emotional bond with and we'll go to each other's classrooms and cry. Um, most of my friends are parents. Um, and so obviously as a school shooting happens in one part of our country and they have to then put their children on a school bus and send them to school the next day, I recognize how difficult that must be. And so I really try to be a, a presence there for them in those moments of difficulty and, um, and sadness and fear. And, you know, we, we talk about frustrations. I think that's probably the most intense part of our conversations is it's probably the anger behind it and behind lawmakers who think that again, arming teachers is the answer or think that putting armed guards at the, at the entrance of every school is the answer. Um, I just, I, I tend to, chat with some like-minded folks which I think is the majority of the teachers here at Episcopal when it comes to things like violence against schools um, that more guns is not the answer and looser gun laws is not the answer um, so we do we process a lot we pass articles back and forth from multiple news sources we're really careful not to only read um, super left-wing news sources we really try to get very centrist news sources and even read some of the right wing news sources as well just to understand what the other side is saying about solutions and blame and things like that so we know how to best address our students in the coming days. So what were some of the responses from your students because I remember you always made it an effort to create a very like safe space in your classroom whether it was for in like the classroom setting where we were talking about academic texts or if you wanted to or if a student wanted to personally come to you with a matter it always felt like kind of a place where where we could go and just not be judged and um and I feel like you tried to create that for your students after the shooting in Nashville so did you feel like your students were able to really express their ideas and and if so what were some of was there anything very like innovative and inspiring that came out of that <laughs> well, the classes that we talked most specifically about it, um, we touched on it with my sophomores. We did talk about the school shooting in Nashville. I had a couple kids who had absolutely no idea. Wow. Um, so that was kind of, it's not unbelievable because there also is the numbness that comes with just another one and another one and like mm -hmm. in the most horrible way another one you're sort of waiting for the news of the next one um but so i worked with the creative writing students and kind of took a day away from the curriculum that we were working through which was um a pairing of horror writing and satirical writing which i guess you could pair together to do something about school shootings but um we and that's those are my junior senior classes so my one class is kind of evenly split with five and six of juniors and seniors and the other one is 11 to two seniors to juniors 
So a really big, a big spread of kids. But I, I tell them first and foremost, again, as you saw my Instagram story, I always tell them that, they, that I love them. And I think I've been really intentional about um, making sure that they, they feel seen and heard and validated and um, worthy of all the love that we have to give to them. And then we, you know, I let them write for a little bit. And one class was a little more radical than the other in terms of um, things that we don't have the technology or the money to do, like systems to shut down automatic rifles when they're in crowded areas and things like that. Um, you know, who knows what technology could could do 50 to 100 years down the road, but certainly not today. Um, and then in my other class that's pretty senior heavy, uh, there was a pretty respectful and good debate about banning weapons um, and what types of weapons should be banned um, and how a person decides when and where and how to ban weapons. You know, what do you do with a person who already owns a bunch of weapons that are going to be under law uh, banned from from public ownership? Um, so mm-hmm. it, it was actually really wonderful and there was some respectful disagreeing. And I think that's an important part of, of learning how to be an adult is to respectfully disagree with people and talk through it. Mm-hmm. And they did a really great job um, trying to listen and understand each other while still shaping and sharpening their own viewpoints. Did you think that there was like a difference maturity wise between talking with your sophomores and talking with your seniors about it? Yeah, I think there's a, a recognition of the deeper seated issues in, in law and government with the older kids. My sophomores are sad. Um, I think that the juniors and seniors can really associate the ages of the children who have been killed in this country in various school shootings to faculty kids um, where they can say, oh, I've babysat for this family because we all live here, you know, that the students will babysit for for faculty families. And I'm sure you did it once or twice in your time. Um, But to say that so-and-so's kid is the age of the kid who died, um, I think that really puts it into perspective for them. And they're able to reflect a little bit deeper on it than the sophomores. I do have some sophomores who are very, very deep thinkers and hopefully, you know, future writing center fellows. But um, (laughs) but we shall see. Um, But I think there's a depth of understanding for the greater societal issues that my juniors and seniors seem to get a bit more than my sophomores. What what would you do? about guns or guns in school, violence in school, any of it? Well, clearly I have all the solutions here. Um, <laughs> well, I obviously, as, as I had mentioned, have a pretty strong aversion to guns, generally speaking, but I certainly think the strongest feeling that I have is that no ordinary citizen needs to own an assault rifle or anything that is used as a weapon of war. Um, so that would probably be my first plan of action if I were in Congress or some kind of government position is proposing um, to bring back the assault weapon uh, ban, which was in place. And then when the Republicans passed the law to lift that, there was this major spike in violence in schools. And then there was a major spike in violence, generally speaking, but also in schools um, after the Trump administration took office. And so just sort of seeing those trends, I mean, I, I believe in the science of seeing trends and trying to solve that problem Um, and so I think that would be step one now again there is the idea that I had mentioned earlier as well that if bad people want to do bad things they're going to do what it takes to find those weapons to get them illegally to do whatever it takes Um, 
But I certainly think that a step in the right direction includes bans on assault weapons as well as um, stronger background checks. I mean, it's harder to get a driver's license in this country than it is to get a gun. Um, even one of my students during that conversation said you can go to any gun show, student is in particular is from Florida, and mentioned that you could go to any gun show in Florida with cash and there is no background check, there is no paperwork, and you could just buy a gun off of a vendor. Now, obviously, that's a vendor issue, um, but it's, it's pretty horrifying to hear that, that guns can be placed in the hands of any individual. And so I think those extended background checks and stronger vetting um, is a really important part of the beginning stages of solving this problem. I mean, I certainly don't think I have the solutions and I don't think that there is a quick solution. It's going to have to take time, but it starts with considering the weapons that are manufactured in this country and who has access to those and how easily they have access to those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. Like, since I've moved to the UK, when when there's a loud sound and you're out in public, nobody flinches. And in the U.S., everybody, no matter where you are, is ready to hit the ground. And it totally attests to, like, the culture of fear that's just embedded in us. Something else I'm wondering is, is what would you say to these lawmakers who have absolutely no idea what it's like to be a teacher in America? I certainly would tell them to consider their own children, right? I think it's really important that even lawmakers without kids should be considerate of other people's kids. I, I do that every day as just a, a human. I don't think I have to be any kind of position of authority to consider other human beings. Um, and the idea of if you value life, generally speaking, I mean, there's this huge debate in this country now about women's reproductive rights. And mm -hmm. it's one thing to be pro-birth, but it's another thing to be pro-life. And I think those are vastly different things. And to be a proponent of arming teachers and putting more guns into the hands of citizens is not a pro-life stance. Um, that's actually very anti-life. Um, so it's very hard to sit down and talk to people of opposing viewpoints because oftentimes, and I'm sure you've experienced this, in high school and in college, this concept of whoever is the loudest is the most correct. Um, it's, we see that on the dorms oftentimes. I lived on a boys dorm for five and a half years here and two years at my old job. And so uh, that was a very big male dominated idea of thinking is if you're just louder than the other person, you're obviously right. It does not really happen as much in girls dorms in the, the, the oh gosh, how many years has it been? Four and a half years that I've lived on girls dorms. Um, but there is certainly a an issue of just sitting down and listening. And that, that speaks a lot to our political climate currently, that we don't want to listen to the other side. We don't want to learn why people think the other way than we do, because they obviously have to be wrong. Um, and so I think that, again, I really tried to facilitate a conversation where you are listening to someone who is pro-gun and really wants to own guns and, and be able to own whatever type of gun they want and listen to those reasons why while still being able to explicate why you think the opposite of that. Um, and so, unfortunately, in a lot of the interviews you've seen lately, I know John Stewart just had a, a pretty um, divisive interview where, you know, he's arguing about drag shows versus gun control um, and a lot of, again, so sorry about your home state, but what's going on in Tennessee right now. Um, 
but it is it's difficult because there's often the idea of just changing the subject or pushing another agenda item i'm not saying an agenda particular but just an item that they that they feel is more pressing but um it is an incredibly difficult thing to talk about with someone who has an opposing viewpoint um, because so many people lose patience so quickly they just don't want to listen yeah and it also feels like it feels like we're up against such a wall because guns and the NRA are backed by so much money and power. It's like, do do we really think that change is possible as long as the system is as corrupt as it is right now? Because it's really not democratic. And if anything, to your point about being pro-life, but also pro-putting guns in schools, just so that whoever is is backing the NRA doesn't lose their votes or the money behind them. It's it's post-apocalyptic, honestly. And or not post-apocalyptic, but apocalyptic, I guess. Um yeah, so I mean, it's just it's I feel so hopeless. You know, it's like how do we move forward as like a country? I agree. And I think one of the big points of conversation that we had, I mean, as you well know, we have these 75 minute class periods that we can really dig into our content area but then when things like this happen you know I'm obviously happy to forego my curriculum to really talk about life with kids and um, you know we talked pretty heavily about lawmakers receiving financial financial aid if you will from the NRA um, and the fact that the folks who do receive that money are majority if not all I don't know statistically 100% but majority, if not all, Republican, um, and that keeps them in office, is to, to propose new gun laws that allow guns to be more quickly in the hands of others. Um, but we also then talked about change. I mean, even since you've been here, cultural shifts at Episcopal cause rules to change. And I don't understand, as a citizen of this, of this country, I don't understand why we hold so dearly a, a, a right that was made so many hundred years ago um, and involved weapons that are no longer used anymore because of, you know, because of war. We needed those, the right to bear arms for, you know, safety of our land and our and our country and things like that. And nowadays people think that they have to have a gun to threaten people who are peacefully protesting and things like that. They're, the right to bear arms is so antiquated because it's so specific to a certain type of firearm um, that I don't understand why it can't be examined. Um, why people are so unwilling to change. Are there, uh, do you know of any like efforts among teachers to speak with lawmakers or? I know a lot of us call um, our senators and congressmen um, pretty frequently. Obviously it spikes more when these things like this happen, but you know, we share resources and send uh, phone numbers around. Hey, remember to call Don Beyer, um, you know, when he was the, the congressman, you know, Ralph Northam. Um, and uh, we really do try to do our part. There's nothing really official. But again, just having people who care about children all together, uh, you know, we do our best to have these conversations, share resources, and, and make our phone calls as much as sometimes it feels like you had mentioned the word hopeless. It feels like change is hopeless sometimes. Um, but if you don't try, it will never happen. What do you recommend people who aren't teachers but who want to help out be they American or not uh, what do you recommend that they do well I certainly recommend that people call their representatives whether it's local or state 
um, to call your representatives. There are so many scripts available online that, that people can use. So the words are already there. You just have to practice saying them um, and to kind of fill in the blanks with names and where you are. And, you know, these are the people that are voted into office by the people. Um, so they are by the people, for the people, and should listen to the people. Now, that's not always the case in, in certain areas, but we really hope that because we elect officials that they will listen to us. Um, so that's obviously step one. Obviously, writing letters is the same, signing petitions, um, going to demonstrations when it is possible to do, I think is, are so many steps that sound like they aren't going to make a difference, but continue to just sort of chip away at this hard shell exterior of movement um, for gun control and stronger gun policies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think strength in numbers and also I think that change in this kind of way comes from a change of culture and also just common humanity and coming together when things are really scary and and seem insurmountable you know and I don't fault people for Um, saying things like thoughts and prayers I think thoughts and prayers are are really important part of processing and grieving and um I, I certainly think a lot, obviously, and I also pray for people who have lost their children, who have lost their husbands and wives and um, their colleagues and their students and things like that. There is nothing wrong with thoughts and prayers, but thoughts and prayers don't mean action. Um, mm-hmm. And that's really the important part that I think is often forgotten. It's like, oh, well, we have to pray for these victims. And, so, and yes, yes, we do. Absolutely. They deserve all of our prayers in this time, but we also need to to push our lawmakers to create change as well. We can be the catalyst for that, but it has to be a collective effort. It can't just be the few. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I guess to wrap up, is there anything, what's, what is the, the major thing that you want people listening to take away from this talk? Oh gosh. Um, well, I, I, we just had family weekend at Episcopal high school. And so Um, A lot of what we talked about in reading, um, as you read, Human Acts by Han Kang is one of the texts that my sophomores read, and it's about the 1980 Guangzhou uprising. Um, And we talk about how students, because it was a student-led uprising that pushed South Korea towards democratization of the country, we talk about how students can be agents of change. And I think that oftentimes students don't believe that they can do anything because of their age. And luckily, I think that that's changing a lot um, as as the years go on and the more the more years I've been teaching, the more I've seen it in students that they feel empowered to share their ideas and push for change in various areas of, of political life. Um, and so I think the biggest thing to take away from this is that anybody can be an agent of change um, if they continue to work hard for the greater good of any society. Thank you.